Ladies and gentlemen, uh, maybe um, it's about time for us to start the, uh, the event while we're still waiting for uh, some of our uh, guests who are coming late. Um, um, good morning, uh, ladies and gentlemen. My name is David Wang. I teach modern Chinese literature and culture here at Harvard University. Uh, together with my colleagues at Wellesley College, uh, Professor Alan Whitmer and Professor Mingwei Song, I would like to uh, extend my warmest welcome to all of you for this event, uh, May 1st at 100, uh, China and the World. 100 years ago, on May 4th, 1919, uh, students, literati, and citizens at large rose up to protest China's uh, diplomatic setback at Versailles, to demand national reform and a cultural renaissance. And since then, May 4th has developed to become an historical event and cultural institution and a myth of sorts. And 100 years later, today here at Harvard, we are gathering together to uh, think again about the causes and the consequences of the May 4th movement, and to take issue with the common wisdom regarding the so-called legacies of the May 4th. And on this occasion, uh, this is actually a, a sobering moment for us to ponder questions such as, is enlightenment one of the ultimate causes of the May 4th? Uh, isn't this enlightenment also a kind of enchantment? Isn't the cause of a revolution um, uh, also begetting something unexpected, evolution or no revolution? Or isn't the ultimate cause of a democracy and freedom resulting in something we now call a harmonious society? And this is a moment when China is supposed to be going strong and rising. And still, this is a moment we have so much more to expect of this nation to transform itself into something even better and bigger. So this is an international conference um, on which we would like to uh, gather different um, uh, colleagues from different disciplines. We'll get together to cover a very wide range of topics from uh, politics to thought, from literature to language. And this is also an international conference in the sense that we'd like to open up new horizons uh, beyond the so-called obsession with China. We want to put China back on the international or global map to think of how this uh, event, the May 4th, could be understood anew as a kind of an international engagement with not only Chinese modernity, but also global modernity. So I would like to take this opportunity to thank uh, all of you for being here to share your wisdom and the thought with each other and particularly with our own students. And also I'd like to thank uh, Professor Michael Zoni, director of the Fairbank Center um, here to uh, deliver welcome remarks to this event. I wanted just to add one note that um, almost 30 years ago in 1990, Professor Alan Whitmer and I organized a conference from May 4th to June 4th right here at the Fairbank Center. And now, uh, 29 years after, 30 years almost, we are here uh, to celebrate or commemorate the centennial uh, conference, centennial anniversary in uh, celebration of the May 4th and its legacies. So um, without further ado, may I have the honor to introduce Professor Michael Zoni to deliver opening remarks. Thank you. Thank you and good morning. <clears throat> Excuse me. I am very pleased to uh, welcome you all to Harvard University and to this conference marking the centenary of the May 4th movement. Uh, as David mentioned, my name is Michael Sony. I have the honor of directing the Fairbank Center for Chinese Studies. I'd like, first of all, uh, to repeat uh, David's welcome to all of you uh, from near and far for joining us for this conference. I would also like to uh, uh, pay particular thanks to uh, Professor David Wong for his uh, leadership in bringing together scholars from around the globe, uh, from across disciplines for today's conference, but also for the many uh, other activities and conferences, the actual extraordinary number of activities and conferences that David organizes. Uh, on David's behalf, I'd like to offer thanks to the uh, other 
institutions besides the Fairbank Center that have sponsored today's event. These include the Harvard Yenjing Institute, uh, the Asia Center here at Harvard, the Department of East Asian Languages and Civilization, the Jiang Jingguo Foundation, uh, Wellesley College, and National Taiwan University. I'm very pleased that the Fairbanks Center is able to serve as a co-sponsor of today's conference. The confluence of individuals and ideas from across different universities and across different disciplines is precisely what we strive to achieve uh, in our mission to advance scholarship in all fields of Chinese studies. Uh, I don't think I had realized until just now how many May 4th conferences David has organized because I was going to refer to uh, four years later than 1990, uh, David and Ellen Widmer organized uh, uh, a, a, the 75th anniversary conference on, on the, the May 4th movement. We look forward to many anniversary conferences uh, going forward. But I will say, as a historian who's interested in the role that history plays in contemporary society, I find it particularly fascinating uh, how understanding of this movement has changed uh, and uh, indeed has stayed the same uh, over the past quarter century. The May 4th movement continues to play a central role in our understanding, not simply of literature and culture, but also of China's modern history and society more broadly. It continues to shape the constructs through which Chinese intellectuals and Chinese people more broadly uh, understand their past, their present, and their future uh, even today. It is uh, a, a mark of the significance of the movement, an ironic mark, I suppose, and a somewhat disheartening uh, 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 marker that uh, the birthplace of the movement, uh, Beijing University, held a, a conference on the May 4th movements at, at, at 100 about two weeks ago that turned out to be a very politically sensitive event uh, with all sorts of, of restrictions. Um, on the one hand, uh, I think this shows some discouraging developments in China today. Uh, on the other hand, I think it shows uh, uh, um, uh, the continued importance of the movement. And on the third hand, uh, I think it, it uh, indicates that we here in the United States can still play an important role in the uh, intellectual discourse around China, past, present, and future. As many of you are probably aware uh, the president of Harvard, Larry Bacow, recently visited China and gave a public speech at, at Peking University, again, the, the very birthplace of the movement. Uh, in this speech, uh, President Bacow referred to May 4th as a movement that demonstrated to the world a deep commitment on the part of young Chinese to the pursuit of truth and a deep understanding of the power of truth to shape the future. Even now, he continued, President Tsai, President Tsai Yuanpei speaks to us. Universities are places for grand learning, he said. They are grand because they follow the general principles of free thought. Under his visionary leadership and in the months that followed the uh, outbreak of the protest initially, tremendous intellectual exploration and dramatic social change were unleashed. Individuals in China and China collectively continue to struggle to unify the ideals of the May 4th movement with action. But nonetheless, the words of Tsai Yuanpei about the university, about the role of free thought in promoting a better society continue to ripple through history to the present day. Thank you so much for including me. Best wishes to all for a successful conference. Thank you. Okay, before we start the uh, keynote speech um, today, um, I would like to uh, introduce to you one book, uh, a book edited by um, Professor Meng Wei Song of Wellesley and myself. And this is a book which features uh, more than 50 scholars from different fields and the disciplining, uh, thinking about uh, the significance of May 4th 100 years after its first breakout. So um, for our guests here, uh, for invited guests here at this conference, uh, uh, we would uh, give a copy to each and every of you as a, as a gift and as a kind of a souvenir. And hopefully, uh, this will be uh, stimulating enough for you to think about uh, the various uh, dimensions and the aspects of the May 4th. 
And um, also, I'd like to say a few words about the, um, the keynote speeches. We have arranged the two keynote speeches, one for today and one for tomorrow. And for today, um, we have the greatest honor to have Professor Rudolf Wagner of University of Heidelberg, and he will uh, deliver his uh, remarks very soon. And for tomorrow morning, we'll have uh, Professor uh, Chen Pingyuan from Beijing University, and he will share uh, his own thoughts about the May 4th uh, with us. So I cordially invite you to be here uh, to uh, listen to their wonderful discoveries about this uh, historical event. So now, without further ado, may I introduce uh, Professor Ge Zhaoguang, the host of the first keynote speech, uh, to uh, introduce Professor Rudolf Wagner. Professor Ge Zhaoguang from Fudan University. Thank you. Please come over. Thank you. Uh, 我共王都为先生之命来介绍瓦格纳先生像这个电视在画报之类的研究关于宣传、传媒和国际行动者的在那时候扮演的角色。所以现在我们欢迎瓦格纳教授。Thank you very much for your kind introduction, and good morning to you all. And uh, let me see that the machinery here is properly working, so I can use this device here. Yes, that's okay. And uh, so, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I will uh, uh, talk about uh, the. Um, wait a How do I get my file on? Uh, how do I how do I get that down? I do it with this one here. Do you want to move the page? Yes. I mean, just click the button. Click the button here. Yes, and it will move for you. Okay, so. Let me just talk, uh, introduce shortly the uh, uh, structure. You know, so I will shortly introduce the May 4th as the event. Then I will uh, make a first short summary of some of the recent dis uh, developments in the study of May 4th new culture. And then uh, we are talking about the big section, which is getting out of the prison house of nation-state historiography too, namely the May 4th political agenda. So you have a new culture agenda and a political agenda, and I will mostly focus on the political agenda. And I will go through seven short challenges the May 4th protagonists were facing, you know, and these are the handing of the, the 24, 21 demands in 15, that's the Wilsonism and the May 4th in 19, and the Paris... Uh, uh, Paris Agreement that is talking to Thomas Lamont, the uh, head of the uh, uh, Morgan Bank uh, in 20, that is derailing the ratification of the Paris Treaty in the United States in 21, derailing the renewal of the Anglo-Japanese alliance in 21, recovering the Shandong at the Washington Conference in 22, and finally staying on course the American Information Committee. That is not anymore the Committee on Public Information, which some of you may know. So now the event. Now, an event is not an event. It becomes one only in hindsight. But even if you plan it, you know, and the plan, there was a plan, of course, namely, Zhang uh, Guotao uh, uh, was saying on the evening of uh, May, th May 3rd, you know, you know, there is, tomorrow is a mass movement, you know. So he had an understanding there is a yundung, you know, which is a new concept that took from Japan, Undo, you know, and there was the idea it was a chunjung yundung. So it's not organized by a party, you know, so it's basically rejecting party movements and it's not 
not organized by the state. And it's rejecting party movements not only accidentally, by because it also fixed uh, its date at a, uh, not at a date fixed by a party. The Jinbudang, the Yangtze Charles Jinbudang, f- had a demonstration planned on May 7th, which is Guoqiri, the, the national shame day, because that's the day when the 15 demands were signed in, uh, in uh, uh, 21 demands were signed in uh, 1915. So they, they went on May 4th in a rejection of this kind of a party-organized uh, party events. Now, the May 4th protagonists were rather successful and very active in, the, in, the, in fixing this event. And they, from, as a matter of fact, a week after the event, they already had a jingshan or several jingshan, as a matter of fact, the spirits of May 4th, you know, uh, two weeks later, you know, it became something like a turning point in history. And they were basically rejecting other big turning points. The first big turning points they rejected, of course, were, were the, uh, the Republican Revolution, you know, which is not, so they didn't date themselves in the, the, uh, 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 in the uh, tenth year of the Republic, but 1919, you know, so they, they rejected the, 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 the Republican calendar, and here we have, so uh, basically already from an early time on, you know, they were setting themselves up as a, uh, as a turning point in language and fiction, development of present public opinion, societal organization, conceptual history, and state party society relations, and finally, of course, uh, Hush's new values in society. Now, this became one part of a very dominant master narrative that was staying on course pretty much into the late 1970s, you know, because many of the intellectuals in China itself, as well as abroad, were following the master narrative of the May 4th protagonists, and then it was challenged, you know, in many, many respects. And it was challenged and uh, in a little bit because uh, you had, as a matter of fact, already from early on various uh, uh, various problems with it. One of the problems with it was that you had a, a big challenge from the left, which is associated with the name of Mao Dun. Uh, I think there's going to be a talk on Mao Dun's home here, you know, which is already talking about Mao Dun's criticism of the May 4th. He went much further in 1931, you know, when he gave a speech, you know, in a Marxist-Leninist study group, you know, in which he bluntly declared, you know, that May 4th is not a part of the revolution, but its target. Because it is, as a matter of fact, a bourgeois revolution and a revolution of the Chinese bourgeoisie, which is weak in the bone and is not revolutionary and has become decadent and decrepit and something like that. So the real revolutionaries are going against May 4th. Woof. And you get on the other end, you know, the problem that these protagonists were so strong and effective in dominating the public discourse that both on the communist side and the Guomin-Sang side, there were various efforts to defang it, to get its teeth out. And so the way how they did that actually was already in the, in the agreement of a united front in 37. They already decided, okay, May 4th is going to be Youth Day. And Youth Day was then declared, you know, as a point where people who were play, praised by the Kuomintang or the communists for their un, un, uh, stinting loyalty to whatever the party had ordered them to do, you know, so they were labor heroes, party heroes, and something like that. So the very spirit of May 4th was, in a way, defanged and taken over by the state agencies. And that is, as a matter of fact, how it stayed to this day. I remember in 1989, you know, you had two parallel celebrations in the, uh, the uh, you know, you had Zhao Ziyang, you know, praising young policemen, soldiers, and so on and so forth. You know, and you had outside, you know, on Tiananmen, people trying to celebrate what they thought was the real May 4th heritage. So you had a kind of a split uh, thing there. So, the, uh, uh, the, uh, inter- the challenges to the cultural narrative about May 4th, which I have just outlined, were mostly internalist. That is, they were going for an internalist kind of a challenge. And they were, you know, there was, as a matter of fact, the literary break is not, uh, as a matter of such a break, because you had important changes since the late Qing literature, you know, uh, that was Milena Dorijelova's edited volume was the first to do that, but this has led to many other studies. Others went 
and say, well, the language they are pushing, as a matter of fact, was not as sort of dominant. As a matter of fact, they were pretty marginal for many, many years. You know, you had the, the stuff people actually read, you know, denounced as, you know, the writing, as a matter of fact, was the, the really more important literary stuff. So you get studies on this one here. You had a, a, a studies on conceptual history, you know, which showed that, as a matter of fact, the big import was already in the uh, around 1900, 1910, you know, of new concepts coming in, and May 4th was a little bit on the later side. And uh, then the big claims, you know, namely that this was, you know, uh, the, the Chinese Renaissance or the Chinese Enlightenment, you know, has been, you know, nicely taken apart by, by Yuing Shi in a, in a fine essay, you know. And uh, uh, so we have, as a matter of fact, quite a lot of, uh, uh, of studies, you know, which were now basically dealing with internal Chinese materials to take that apart. And, uh, uh, but you had already sort of an assumption uh, by, uh, or an admission in a way, by Hu Shi writing in 1933 in the Chinese Renaissance, you know, slowly but quietly, but unmistakably, the Chinese Renaissance is becoming a reality. Now, he had just read a book about Renaissance, so his knowledge was not exactly very profound, you know. So he had a book introducing the Renaissance, said, that's it, you know. So, and then he read a book about Enlightenment, said, bah, this is it too, you know. So you have basically a kind of a, a, a rather sort of a, a quick fix uh, appropriation of these big things. So, so and then he, he went on, he said, the product of this rebirth looks suspiciously occidental. But scratch its surface, and you will find that the stuff of which it is made is essentially Chinese bedrock, with mu which much weathering and corrosion have only made stand out more clearly. The humanistic and rationalist China surrected by the touch of the scientific and democratic. Now, this is a very funny thing. Here we have the Chinese bedrock suddenly is even more Western you know, uh, then the Western stuff, the, the scientific democratic, that's a cylinder, that's we all know, you know, and suddenly what's the bedrock? It's the humanistic and rationalistic, you know, so this is straight out of the playbook of John Dewey, you know, so you scratch Chinese tradition, what you get is the straight West, you know, so you have a kind of a very strange uh, uh, idea there, but anyway, the, the what that it looks suspiciously occidental was something we're saying, and there were, of course, then in the, in the early 40s, other writers, they're pushing that line very hard and says this is just a kind of a, a second-rate Western import, this May 4th business, you know, with no cultural substance whatsoever. And to call that a renaissance, you know, is totally over, overblown. And there was a similar criticism on the uh, uh, question of the, uh, of the Enlightenment. Now, if we look at the... Um, at the, this 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 uh, question, which uh, about this bedrock here mentioned by by Huxi, and uh, uh, look at one thing which I just mentioned on the on the side, you know, because I've been always amazed that this book, which I personally consider really uh, a, a kind of a, a work, uh, great attention, uh, were worth great attention by uh, by uh, by scholars dealing with May Fourth, uh, 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 and it, as a matter of fact, hasn't found any market. Now this is a book which came out in 1923, went through 16 unchanged printings, and has about 900 pages, and it's one of the highest quality books in China in the 20th century. Now, this is what it is, and it has the nice title, Xin Wenhua Shu, Terminological Handbook of New Culture. Now, what could be clearer dealing with the Xin Wenhua than a Xin Wenhua Shu? Right? Now, if you look into the Xin Wenhua Shu, what that is, it is very interesting. I give you just one entry for it, which I use for another purpose. You see, all the entries are arranged according to the Western alphabet. Right? So the, the entire organization is according to the Western alphabet. Now, you get the key terms are, as a matter of fact, included in brackets. There is always a bibliography in there. You know, you look at that, say, the Bergson article or things like that, you have a detailed bibliography of his writings in both Chinese and in the Western thing with original sources and something like that. It's, a, it's of a bibliographic quality, which, I mean, there's no book after 1949 has ever reached this level of quality, both in terms of text and in terms of sophistication of these entries. You read these entries, they are unbelievable. You know? I mean, you read the entrance of Buddhism, this is the wrong one, that's 80 pages. But the interesting thing is, in the entire book, China is not part of new culture. 
There is not a single element that's leading this China. So the Xin Wenhua, by Fengzhou by, so, you know, this is just, I mean, I'm not inventing that. This is just a standard handbook, which is standing on everybody's table there, you know. And you have, of course, Maudun working in it and the editorial team, you know. You look at the number, the names there, which haven't been studied very well. It is really very interesting. Okay, so that is just sort of a four introductions. Now, we are moving to the second phase here, and now we are going to the political agenda. Now, we are dealing handling the 21 demands in 15, because obviously the May 4th, in its strong focus on Japan, was taking up very explicitly, you know, the question of and taking on, and some of the personnel even were involved, you know, uh, the, the uh, developments four years before. Now, the, uh, uh, in 19, there was an assumption that the Peking government, which had some of the same persons who had signed the, the, the 21 demands, such as Cao Rulin, they were, as a matter of fact, going to sign the Paris Agreement again, you know, and sell off uh, Chinese uh, things. They had just signed, as a matter of fact, a treaty half a year ago with Japan, which reconfirmed the validity of the 21 demands, as a matter of fact, of the agreement on that. So now the, uh, the two core elements defining the May 4th political focus are sovereignty as a principle and the rejection of Japan's takeover of the Shandong concession as a specific policy. So these were the political things very clearly so. Now the shared understanding they were operating in, in the First World War, is something one should spend a second on. Namely, you get a new understanding of the importance of publicity and propaganda uh, in the First World War. All the participants in the war, the Germans, the Japanese, the French, the English, the Americans, were all setting up propaganda departments by the state. And these propaganda departments were pushing, as a matter of fact, first in the United States, as an example, to convince the American public to join the war. Now, Wilson had won his election in 12 with a platform not joining the war. If a second re-election, right? It was a platform in '16, not joining the war. A year later, he switched and joined the war. So suddenly, you know, there was a big anti-feeling uh, to get into the war, and there was a very strong pro-German uh, group in the United States with a lot of newspapers and propaganda fed by the Germans, you know, to push, to keep America out of that war. So, and. So it was the first thing was to convince the American public. The second thing was to convince, as a matter of fact, the, the opponents, the Germans, you know, to somehow uh, uh, lose faith that they would win and something like that. And then you have to keep your friends on your side and the neutrons, you know, neutrals, neutral or pull them over to your side. So here you have, but you have basically the same thing going on all over the place. So you get a move from a understanding of the press and of media as a medium of information and rational discourse to an instrument of propaganda where you had a different understanding of the public. Now, since the late 19th century, since the, uh, uh, the La Psychologie des Foules, the psychology of the masses, famous book in, in, in 1895 in French, came out in English, German, so on and so forth, this defined the same, well, the masses, as a matter of fact, are not rational. Collectively, they are into all sorts of wild frenzies, and a good politician has to be able to control them, and you have to be keep them uh, keep them uh, uh, onto a good course. Otherwise, you know they go go all over the place. So the government has to use propaganda means as a very positive uh, uh, positive thing to prevent the masses from going haywire, which they would spontaneously do. So this assumption, as a matter of fact, fed uh, and a notion that. Here we have to go into some big propaganda efforts, you know, because in the assessment at the time was that in a war you have, you know, various factors which are important: military hardware, uh, information, uh, uh, strategy, uh, alliances, and so on and so forth. And then the question: What is the relative importance of the psychological factor? And the American military decided in 1917. The, the psychological factor outweighs all other factors together. So suddenly, you know, you get an importance of the psychological factor, you know, which is completely new. So 
we get all these committees being set up. They recruited normally people from the new mass media, Northcote in, in England, you know, Lord Northcote, who has, was running all the tabloids in England, you know, he became the head of the British Committee on War Propaganda, right? So here you have people hired, you know, from these new mass media, you know, tabloid mass media, you know, and they were running this thing. And you look at the development of propaganda in the 20s and 30s in the United States, everybody and his grandmother who became famous then, like Freud's nephew Bernays, here from Boston, right? He, of course, worked in the Committee on Public Information here in the United States, you know? And uh, then you see the second big development between the wars, namely development of advertisement. And advertisement is moving also from providing information to, to, uh, to using other instruments of propaganda to convince people. So advertisement, you know, the same people who write the propaganda handbooks are setting up the big companies, you know, for advertisement. You know, it's exactly the same personnel. You know, Bernays is in both, both areas. He advises governments, you know, and tobacco companies, you know, so that's the same thing. Okay, so this is the general context here and it comes with a with a conviction shared by all sides, namely that the, 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 the effect of this convincing the public to accept a certain point, you know, has a huge impact on government, and therefore it is the key to, as a matter of fact, uh, an effective political action if you cannot rely, you know, on direct government support there. And this was the situation in 15, where, as a matter of fact, the government was under a rigid rule not to divulge you know, that these existed at all, these 21 demands. And there was a kind of an inside communication between some members of the Chinese government and the foreign community, you know, that the only way to deal with that would, as a matter of fact, be to divulge them, to make them public, and to put the Japanese on the defensive. Because neither the French nor the Japanese were willing to come out in the open because they had, the Japanese had just entered the war on their side. And there was a big issue, namely, the Japanese were very pro-German, they assumed the Germans might win, and there was a strong tendency in Japan to side with the Germans in that war. And so to get the Japanese to side again on that war meant that then the Japanese were sort of uh, doing this, they were, uh, they were very sort of... Uh, 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 um, uh, uh, it, 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 there were, the, the British and French kept low because they didn't want to criticize that. Now, in a very short manner, you look at the way how this then happened. The uh, uh, the finance minister, Zhou Zixi, uh, is uh, down here on the last line here, right? He sent a telegram to a, a, a journalist called Donald. And Donald, again, you know this, perhaps you know this book, Donald of China. Uh, uh, this is an absolutely wonderful figure, you know, and amazing figure. He sent a telegram to Donald, chaos come to Peking straight in. So uh, Donald went to Shanghai, from Shanghai to Peking, and then in a very complex way managed to get to basically uh, talk to Zhou Zixi, write what he thought might be the demands, which Zhou Zixi could not release. He wrote them down, and he asked him, just write, strike out those which are wrong. You know, and he was largely right, you know, but some of them he, he was wrong. Then he asked, you know, give me some indication what else could there be? So he, uh, he did that. So in this process, he cooked up a kind of invented list of these demands and then tried to get that public after talking to the American ambassador, you know, who was, as a matter of fact, helping with that. And the next thing was that the, once this get got to the, 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 the Washington Post, the New York Times, and the, uh, the, the London Times, they called, of course, their foreign office, and they called the Japanese embassy for confirmation. And they said, this is all lie, this is all poorly invented, something like that, didn't publish. You know, so the Japanese impact was strong enough to block publication, right? And eventually, you know, there was some inside uh, story that somehow the Chinese government and Reinch, the American ambassador, had some kind of a secret strategy how to get it released, and they leaked it first to Donald, the original translation. And then Donald had the real thing, you know, that was published, and the effect was that the well press took that up straight away. The Japanese were pushed into taking off and accepting the non-signing of Group 5 of these demands, which basically established the Japanese advisory board, which was to be run all of China. And the effect was that 
the, the usage of the media and the uses, usage of targeted propagandistic media means turned out to be effective and convinced the American ambassador, Donald, and the Chinese government, you know, as a matter of fact, that this was important. And the important thing here was international public opinion. International public opinion was a key thing. There was a big demonstration in Peking, you know, against signing the 21 demands, you know, with some 200,000 people. But at that moment, you know, this did not have the same impact as international public opinion. Yeah, oh, here's a picture of Zhou Zixi, and here's Paul Reinsch, that's our, the, the American ambassador there. And uh, uh, here is Henry Donald, you know, Donald of China, you know, who was uh, 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 doing all that muckraking here. And this is, as a matter of fact, the, uh, eventually Donald was asked by Lu Zhengxiang, the, the foreign minister, to write the Chinese reply, which he did. And this was something like you get that at one o'clock in the afternoon, the, the, the ultimatum ran out at 10 in the evening. One o'clock in the afternoon, Lu Jingxiang got him in and said, you have to write it. So Donald sat down, wrote the, wrote the reply, you know, which without the, the fifth group, right, which then eventually was accepted. You know, so you have basically a kind of an interaction where the Chinese government is having quite some agency, cannot exact it because they are bound by the Japanese threat of war action if they divulge it. You know, they go with the American ambassador and they go with a foreign journalist you know, and make this targeted leak, you know, and then they become convinced, yes, this is the way to go. So now the... Uh, um, uh, in, in the, uh, uh, what we have here is that you have since the uh, uh, in, in, in China is sitting in a kind of a, at that time in an asymmetrical situation of communication namely the information about the 21 demands which is sitting in Peking gets to China by being published first in the Chicago Daily News. From the Chicago Daily News it gets into the Washington Post in the Washington Post it gets to the Washington Post correspondent in China the Washington Post correspondent in China gets it to the North China Herald, and the North China Herald is then translated in the Shenbao in Shanghai. Because the Chinese language newspapers, the Shenbao had Reuters, but Reuters was, i talk about that in a sec, the Chinese newspapers, as a matter of fact, none of them had subscribed to a news agency. There were three news agencies of importance, that was Reuters, Koksai, and Havas. You know, and the Germans were already out of it because, I mean, they, 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 uh, they, they were not, not, not being allowed to be active anymore. So, and none of these news agencies were, as a matter of fact, subscribed by the Chinese newspaper outside Reuters in a uh, uh, thing. But the problem was that the, these uh, Reuters, as a matter of fact, had made an agreement with Koksai the Japanese state agency, that as a matter of fact, all East Asian news would be collected by Koksai and Reuters would distribute it. So whatever they would know about China was coming through a Japanese source. You know, whatever got to America or England or something like that about China got through a Japanese source. You know, so you had a skewed kind of a thing there where even America was completely marginalized and America tried to overcome that by from a very early time on trying to set up some independent communication structure which would improve Chinese information in the United States and vice versa. And that was done since already, as a matter of fact, the late Qing, you know, and then uh, with Miller, you know, a man we are going to come, uh, come back to, you know, and uh, uh, so, and here in 07, you have exactly the situation with the exception, exception of occasional utterance, such as the writing of Thomas Miller, that's the Miller Review uh, founder, or the dispatches of Fred McCormick, the Peking Correspondent of the Associated Press, and the redoubtable Morrison of the London Times, you know, Australian there, no news was published about China which did not originally originate in Japanese sources and reach the press through Japanese-controlled channels. This is the consequence of the Anglo-Japanese alliance of 1902, you know, when basically Reuters and Coxai made that kind of arrangement. So you get then in 15, after 21 demands, you get then suddenly, you know, translations again in the Shenbao and other newspapers, you know, of articles in the, uh, in the American press, which had been reprinted in the North China Daily News, where suddenly resisting the 21 demands was defined as a Chinese sacred duty. 
So the notion of what to do and how to handle that was again filtered through editorials and opinion pieces coming from the United States through the North China Health and so on and so forth. Right? So we have basically an agreement between the Japanese actors who try to block release of the news and the Chinese actors who try to get it out, namely that going public and doing propaganda work was absolutely essential and therefore the Japanese blocked it and the Chinese tried to get it out. Now, uh, uh, the challenge number two is uh, uh, Wilsonism. So we have, you know, the, the Paris Agreement. Uh, you know all about it. I don't have to say anything about that, you know. But Wilson's position, as a matter of fact, changed after America entered the war uh, in, in 17. And his wartime speeches, you know, were making the point that the U.S. is entering the war to defend themselves, not to defend themselves or in search of spoils, but to defend two high principles, namely the sovereignty of nations and democracy and to establish the framework for a lasting peace. That's the, United, the League of Nations then, right? Now, in the particular situation there, we have the new technologies, uh, namely the cables and the wireless, and the news agencies, and it gave, it gave this war a huge media presence, which earlier wars didn't have. You know, you have a fast, immediate media presence, including imagery and so on and so forth. And this introduced many people in Asia to start taking interest in international matters because they had access to it on a day-by-day -day level. So Wilson's speeches are part of this media presence of the war. And the Committee on Public Information set up in, uh, in, 19, uh, in 1917, directly with uh, United States entering the war, is one of these things. So this was the Committee on Public Information set up by Wilson. Priorities were domestic, the enemy, and the neutrals. There was nothing in East Asia, although Reich was very strongly pushing for a China branch, which didn't exist at the time. So what did the ambassador do? He said, if they don't set up a China branch, I do it myself. So he set up a group of translators who started translating into Chinese Wilson's speeches as well as important war news. Now, in the committee of this translation, you know, you have two famous people in there. The translator of Wilson's speeches is Jiang Wang the uh, main translator for the other stuff is from Yolan. So here you have, you know, already the China American embassy, you know, in Peking setting up these wonderful things. Now the the uh, uh, third person involved there is, as a matter of fact, Charles Crane. Uh, Crane. Uh, is a, a wealthy businessman from, from Chicago who originally was considered ambassador in China already in late Qing and when Reinch after the, the Paris Agreement was, uh, was divulged he decided I'm not part of that anymore he resigned. He resigned as ambassador and became advisor to the Chinese government so he was consistent he started before the Committee on Public Information came and he ended, you know, when Wilson abandoned his own principles. And his successor, Reinch, as a matter of fact, continued straight the same policy, you know, without publicly criticizing Wilson, but he, as a matter of fact, pushing this anti-Japanese direction strongly on. So now the leaders, what you get now is a kind of a, 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 the, the setting up in, in uh, rather late in August uh, 1918 of the China branch of the Committee on Public Information, which lasted only for some like nine months. And this China branch had, was run by Carl Crow, who set up the first advertisement agency later, by John Powell, the editor of the Millard Review at the time, by Paul Reinch, you know, the, the ambassador, you know, and it was supported by Millard, you know, by one figure we are talking about later, Anderson, you know, who is a big author in the uh, North China Daily News, by Gilbert, also an author there, by, by George Sokolsky, and by Donald, whom we have already met. So you have a group of foreigners running this China branch of the Committee on Public Information, and uh, here we have some of the names. Here is Crane, you know, here you have uh, Wilson's wartime speeches, you know, this is with, with Zhang Wenlin uh, uh, as the translator, you know, so this is the, the this is coming out if, uh, already in 17, you know, uh, uh, long before they, they went into the uh, uh, thing. Okay, here is Powell, you know, uh, this is Carl Crow. Uh, uh, now, the CPI activities, I'll be very short because they have been outlined elsewhere, you know, that is, they established modern media links directed to the United States, mobilized the community of American businessmen, missionaries, and educators, reaching out to Chinese opinion leaders. They had a list of 25,000 Chinese opinion leaders to whom they distributed via American contacts 
Wilson speeches. So this was really effective way. Then they had posters with Wilson pictures, slogans, and I don't know what posted all over the place. So China suddenly became a kind of an advertisement platform for American political uh, 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 things. Now, I would suggest to call this group the betterment of China group, because these were people who had a kind of a commitment to the betterment of China. They were critical of whatever government uh, agency was there, but they had a long-term commitment, and they had all a strong focus on preventing Japan to take over. Now, we are talking a little bit about the personal connection between the May 4th protagonists with this Betterment of China group. Now, the, I will especially talk about the connection with uh, between Hu Shi and Sokolsky. Now, uh, uh, Sokolsky in Shanghai set up a, uh, a Bureau of Public Information in Shanghai in May 1919 uh, when he directly asked Hu Shi to become a member of the advisory board. That's the letter where he wrote that to him. Right? Now, if you look at the uh, at the uh, uh, list of the uh uh, 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 advisory board of this China Bureau of Public Information. You know, now Hu Shi at the time is not just tra uh, transcribed as Hu Shi, but as Hu Su, uh, uh, and he signed that way. So here you have. Let me see where is Hu Shi. Uh, 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 here, here is Hu Su, right? So Hu Su, that's the transcription at the time, right? And so you have in there, you have student leaders, you know, you have business people, you have financiers, you have bankers, you have a group of anybody who had been involved in May 4th, you know, and this is really a May 4th profile, very interesting, that you have, you look at this group here, you know, and they, as a matter of fact, were having even regular meetings. And uh, the, uh, uh, the manager of the entire thing is, as you see up here, uh, George Sokolsky, Right, and uh, uh, Sokolsky actually and uh, and Husher started off a very close uh, friendship. Now, in the uh, 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 the functions of these foreigners in the May Fourth Movement is clear. Namely, they had wide connections within China. You look at their correspondence, you know, they knew everybody in the political world, you know, I mean, personally and very well. They had very wide connections among foreigners because they were all correspondents of foreign papers. They were able to internationally advise the May 4th protagonists, you know, on what the international effect would be, formulate strategies, and disseminate supportive information internationally. They were writing articles in the foreign press. Now, the accepted leader of this kind of a betterment of China group is a guy called Guy Anderson, and who is referred to in the internal correspondence as the Admiral. And, and, and who wrote under the, uh, uh, here's Roy Scott Anderson. He wrote under the name of Bruce Baxter, uh, uh, Bruce Baxter in the North China Daily News. And you read these pieces and you see the May 4th action in Shanghai and Peking and so on and so forth. They followed that advice straight away. I mean, this is very clear that he has a key role, you know, in actually helping them to articulate strategy and make, uh, 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 and uh, take this advice. Here's George Sokoski, you know, with his Chinese name there, you know, Sokassel, and uh, uh, he writes under the name of Gramada, you know, in the uh, various papers, and he also has a, a writes here in the United States. This is uh, uh, Thomas Millet, you know, uh, founder of the Millet Review, then he became an advisor to the Chinese government, you know. So, now, Hu Shi and Sokolsky were, as a matter of fact, very close friends. Now, Hu Shi, Sokolsky referred to Hu Shi in a letter to Lamont as the leader of intellectual China. Uh, 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 Hu Shi uh, wrote about Sokolsky. In 1919, he was aiding the student government, you know, and Sokolsky wrote to Hu Shi about himself. The student movement of 19 in which I had the honor to participate with an enthusiasm and a faithfulness to China equal to any Chinese. So, buff boom. So, between the two, we have nearly 100 letters written between 1919 and 54, and they're very personal, socializing with family, always dealing with China's political situation. Yeah. Okay. Uh, 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 promoting each other, publishing activities. Husha writes a preface to Sokolsky's monstrous and wonderful book, Outline of Universal History, 1928. This, as a matter of fact, is the only world history which is rigidly written from an East Asian perspective. doesn't exist anywhere else. 
you know. So uh, it's an extremely interesting book, you know, and Huschel writes a very flattering preface to that. So just to give you some specimens of these letters, you know, Huschel in handwriting, crackly crackly, he writes in the, uh, in, the, uh, in TypeScript, and you see my bad style of photography of these things, they're all fuzzy, you know, so I have to break my eyes to, to get them. So now here we have basically very close personal contacts between key May 4th protagonists and foreigners operating in there who are not just sort of a vaguely friends, but they are talking politics, they are talking strategy, they are going into great details. Now we are talking now challenge number three, and I can now go very quickly now. Now Thomas Lamont, you all know him, those here in Harvard know him, because he's of course the guy who has given the money for the Lamont Library. He is uh, 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 the undergraduate library here at Harvard, and he is the, 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 uh, a partner in Morgan, the Morgan Bank, and he was, when Wilson changed this attitude to the International Banking Consortium and started to agree with it. Originally thought these are bankers, they are going to rape China. And then he decided, okay, we have to keep something to control the Japanese. So they set up the International Banking Consortium. Lamont was in charge of it. The French and, uh, and English instantly agreed because they were dependent on the United States during the war. And the Japanese were barking. They said, we want our interest in Manchuria and uh, uh, Mongolia protected. And so uh, Lamont then decided, okay, you know, I have to go to the to East Asia, you know, and that's what he did. Now he visited uh, uh, China and Japan, you know, in early uh, 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 2020, and uh, uh, well, he connected. As a matter of fact, he instantly, when that news got around, a pro-Japanese figure, Bronson Rare, wrote to him, you know, and tried to get 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 the, the trip organized by him. You know, and then Sokolsky wrote him, you know, and uh, basically wrote a criticism as much of an article he had written. And so Soko he, as a matter of fact, picked up Sokolsky's offer and then got into very close contact with, uh, with by, in writing. I mean, look at his archive here in the Baker Library, you know. So he has a correspondence with Millard, with Anderson, with Sokolsky, and with Carl Crow. You know, so he is directly engaged with this group here, you know, and no com further communication with Bronson Rare. Now, he was pushing, uh, Lamont in China was pushing for the setting up of a legitimate central government, you had the North Side's government at the time, with a central war ministry to control these various armies, but he also wanted securities for these bonds to have them sellable. That meant establishing some sort of control over that, right? So, well... He was meeting in, in Shanghai, he was meeting everybody and his grandmother from Sun Yat-sen, you know, to various warlords, to the bankers, to, and so on and so forth. But Sokolsky also set up a big meeting with the students. And we have a wonderful protocol of that, you know, in a journal which nobody reads, you know, it's called uh, the uh, 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 World's Work, you know, uh, where you have a detailed description of that discussion, you know, and a very controversial discussion because the students thought the international consortium is a way to monopolize China and control it. So they were against it. And when Lamont came to, to Shanghai, uh, uh, the first rumor was that the students are going to come with stones and throw stones at his hotel, you know, to sort of express their anger about it. And then he did something wonderful. He said, why don't you come for tea? So they, he invited them for tea, you know, so they had a, with 30 of them came, 10 of them women, and had a long discussion. And in the end, he managed, it seems, to convince these students, you know, that he had a good point in actually getting Japan into the consortium because it would prevent Japan from doing loans to various government figures outside the rules of the consortium, right? So it was, as a matter of fact, in the Chinese interest to do that. Now, then he went to Peking. Well, what you do, Sokolsky writes to Hu Shi and writes to him and says, you have to meet him. Then next thing you see, you know, you have a big meeting here. here this, is, this is him here. You, you look at the Hu Shi diary. You know, here is the meeting with Lamont, you know, and you see Hu Shi writes on the side here, you know, you know, we had a very long talk. He takes Xie Shung Dai Biao, you know, uh, so they're, uh, they're with it. We're in the meeting with Lamont, you know, so, and then Hu uh, Shi writes, you know, we had a long talk, you know, what he was saying, you know, made me very depressed. 
you know, so obviously he was, uh, he had by now an understanding. He had met the state president and the prime minister and so on. So, so, wow, this Chinese situation is not very funny. So here we have basically a kind of a, 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 an, a, an engagement, you know, where uh, Lamont came to China, managed, you know, with the help of these foreigners and the various people involved in La Crucial to turn around the opinion on the, uh, on the uh, consortium. And you look at the effect when it came back to the United States, all the Chinese student unions in the United States invited him for speeches, you know, and with very flattering letters, which are also in his correspondence. So, challenge four, and we do that in one sentence. This is the ratification of the Paris Treaty in the United States. You all know that the United States did not join the United Nations, our League of Nations, right? But not only that. And how did it happen? It happened that Crane, who was the successor of, uh, uh, of uh, uh, Reinch as the ambassador in China, and was a wealthy man, he hired, he, he had been convinced by Millard that this the only way to block the Shandong acceptance by the United States was to derail that treaty. Now there was a big opposition in the in the uh, in the Senate against Wilson. You know, so it wasn't Millard's doing. But in fact, Millard spent weeks in the United States going public with interviews, pamphlets, memoranda, and so on and so forth, to basically undermine the signing of the Paris Treaty on the main point that the Chinese objected to the Shandong thing, it was unacceptable, it was against principle, and in a combination of anti-Wilson feeling in the Senate and the actual rationale Miller provided, the, 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 Shandong, the, the entire treaty was turned down, and America a year later did a direct treaty with Germany to end the war. And the effect was that this meant the United States could come back to the Shandong question because they had not accepted officially as a treaty the Paris Treaty, you know, in which the Shandong handling uh, was done. So they had a legitimate cause to come back to it. So very effective way, but in this case, you know, you have practically no Chinese agency, you have Crane coming in there, Miller coming in there, you know, he's operating in the United States, you know, and as a matter of fact, in, the, in, uh, uh, in, uh, um, uh, in China, uh, you would think that this is just two years after the May 4th movement, you know, there would be a big interest in that thing, you know. Now, you look at the correspondence, you know, the Chinese are totally disinterested, and then you get these letters, you know, from Sokolsky of saying, we have to, we have to restart the student movement. You know, we have to. They, they write to each other. You know, we have to restart. We have to do something, right? Because it was a total no-brainer. The Chinese press didn't report about it. Although Shandong was returned to China, you know. So, you know, you think that's an important thing? Well, and it, it was not uh, effective. Now, the, 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 the next one is the Anglo-Japanese alliance. Now, the Anglo-Japanese alliance had to be, re was in 1902, was up for renewal in, in 22, so in 21 they started negotiations, right? And the Anglo-Japanese alliance had a very important clause. If Japan or Great Britain are involved in a war, the other part would support. So that was the big point. Now, Crane went into action again. And in this case, he negotiated with Wellington Ku in the Chinese Foreign Ministry and with other figures, and he hired, you know, a famous, you know, kind of a fake news producer, you know, a really specific a sort of professional propagandist, namely Lennox Simpson, whom you all know under the name of Putnam Wheel. So Putnam Wheel went to London. He was also British, you know, so that was good. He went to London in summer 21, you know, and talked not to the British. That was hopeless. He talked to the Dominion people, the Canadians, the Australians, and said, well, do you really, in the case there is a war between Japan and the United States, which looks like something that might be coming very soon, you really want to get involved in a war against the United States? Now, the Canadian says, not really, you know, and the Australian said, definitely not, you know. So the, 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 the British government, you know, was basically stalled because their dominion leader said, you have to make, we are not, not going to be part of that, you know. And so, and so they, they basically suspended that, you know, and then came a proposal by Harding here, the American president, of setting up a conference, you know, to deal with the question of this arms race, which had started already, and to block that, you know. And then they said, okay, let's go for that. 
So, oh, this is the Leonard Simpson, a very beautiful, uh, uh, nicely made up fellow, fellow here, right? So, now here we have, uh, uh, so this was the, 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 uh, the, the uh, Washington Conference. You know, uh, uh, we, are, we are going to now, that's the last point here. You know, here we have now at the Washington Conference, the main point there was to get an arms agreement between the big powers. That was found, you know, we had freezed on the present situation. Japan cannot build big uh, naval installations in the, in the Pacific, you know, so that was all fine. But, and Shandong, Shandong was not on the agenda. But the Chinese were invited as a minor power, and a system was set up that they would parallel negotiate with the Japanese about Shandong. That didn't get anywhere. And then, as a matter of fact, both Hughes, the Chinese American foreign minister, and Balfour, the British foreign minister, joined in and they pushed very hard with the effect that, as a matter of fact, the Japanese agreed to return Shandong to full Chinese control. So, uh, and uh, the the uh, effect of that was that the uh, 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 the uh, um, uh, uh, the Americans, as a matter of fact, uh, were very instrumental in that because you had very little public pressure in China. You know, you had very little propaganda pressure, but you had, as a matter of fact, a brilliant operation by the Chinese delegates there, which was Wellington Ku, Mang Chonghui, the lawyer, you know, in the International Court of Justice, and Alfred Si, who, as a matter of fact, were able to put Japan on defensive by using Wilsonian principles, you know, in defending themselves. Okay. So we have here now the effect of propaganda and publicity in China itself and international was marginal, but the main agency was in fact with the US government. And uh, here you have, I mean, I won't go for that. This is just on restarting the student movement and so on and so forth. I don't have time for this, you know. And the last thing I want to mention is I just show these things here. So you see in the 30s, suddenly something coming up, which is the American Information Committee, you know, and they are publishing things, you know, strictly criticizing Japan, right? Uh, pamphlets, which are in every American university library, you'll find them here in Harvard too, right? So they were widely disseminated. Their main purpose was to rouse a public opinion, you know, against Japan, especially in the United States, but also among foreigners in China, you know, and you look at the address here, you know, in, uh, in 160 uh, Avenue, uh, Edward 7, you know, that's Carl Crow's address, you know, that's the address of his ad advertisement agency. And Carl Crow, of course, was the head of the CPI China branch, Committee on Public Information China branch uh, uh, in the, uh, the earlier years. So what you have here is a group of foreigners who, as a matter of fact, before the American government moved into the setting up, joined the war, setting up the, the, the Committee on Public Information, they already started. When the Americans turned around in Paris to agree, agree with the Paris Agreement, Wilson did, you know, they continued and basically uh, continued the activity, you know, and when, as a matter of fact, then you get into a new, they continued that in these two other, uh, other things which I've mentioned, uh, in Washington and in London, and eventually uh, they were continuing that in the 30s uh, to the point that some of the members in this group you know, went to with, uh, with uh, uh, Hollington Tong, a, um, a, a Missouri-educated uh, journalist, uh, to join the Guomindang Foreign Propaganda Office and uh, uh, were, as a matter of fact, very strongly engaged in there. And this is especially true for Donald and Powell. Uh, both of them were uh, uh, members of this propaganda department which had a focus to convince the Americans to side with the Chinese and to prevent the Japanese from gaining propaganda advantages. And, well, the price paid by both Donald and Powell is quite high. Donald was getting uh, out of a Japanese prison camp in Indonesia where, happy enough, he was not discovered. They were all high on the most wanted list for the Japanese. So he got out of it, you know, but he had cancer, which was not discovered, so he died two years later. And the Chinese then sent a plane, you know, Chiang Kai-shek sent a plane to uh, have him buried in Shanghai. And Powell uh, came back to Missouri uh, 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 to, uh, with, uh, without his two uh, feet. So uh, uh, you had a little price paid for their loyalty and and advocacy in there. So, and that's about what I'm going to say. And let me just make very short some points. You know, so the May 4th was consciously acted uh, acted as part of an international political and ideological current in both the cultural and political realms. 
Politically, it shared with his cultural, uh, cultural current an idealized version of Wilsonism as a way to sovereignty, democracy, and peace, and the understanding that propaganda in the local and international public sphere through writings, actions, and so on was crucial for securing the national interest in preventing the dark deals of secret diplomacy. The movement had to compensate for a strong asymmetry in the available means of communication, information, and propaganda compared to Japan and the Western powers. It did so. It did compensate by relying on foreign participants who were sympathetic to its goals, nationally and internationally informed, as well as connected and active in media communications. These foreigners were constituent and accepted elements in this movement. They provided guidance, information, and international propaganda. They made use of U.S. official support if it could be had, but continued to act in the same manner if it was not forthcoming. The Chinese leaders <clears throat> in politics and society, as well as foreigners sympathetic to this movement, were aware that the country was dependent for the defense of its territorial integrity and for its economic development on foreign support. They made great efforts to convince the U.S. public that such a support, rather than siding with Japan, coincided with vital U.S. economic and security interests. China was able to retain an often very emotional commitment of many of these foreigners over time, even though some left in frustration and others went over to Japan. The legitimacy given to propaganda by the high aims of sovereignty, democracy, and peace in China came with the price that the means of propaganda as an argumentative genre itself were not questioned in China, and propaganda elements came and continue to be pervasive in literature, the arts, and scholarship. And I have again gone over time, and I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> Do we still have some time for discussion? Or have we so much over time that we have time? We have time for discussion? Yes? Okay. I, I think it's about time for, for, for a break. But uh, if you would like to take a few questions, we I would love to, and I will answer very quickly. Okay, sure. all right. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, uh, we'll uh, be able to accommodate a couple of questions, but not necessarily long answers, all right? No. And then we'll take an uh, immediate break. Okay, yeah. Any, any particular questions, comments? Yes. Uh, well, thank you very much. It was so interesting. Uh, it was really very interesting. I would just like make a small remark. Uh, you showed the interplay or the position of China in the, um, let's say, certain global uh, and mainly American politics. But I would emphasize even further the global situation and just make a small remark that my country, Czechoslovakia, resulted from, was, was successful in Versailles in 1918 and became an independent country. And again, everything depended on the ability of the future President Masaryk to draw the sympathy of American public. He had an American wife. He was very active in the United States. He was a professor and a man of letters. So I just would like to say that this is something more general. And it uh, shows perfectly how much uh, the Chinese case was uh, connected to global processes going all over the globe, even in Central Europe. So thank you very yeah. much. Yeah, thank you very much. I mean, just one sentence to that. I mean, the uh, of course, Wilson's main point on sovereignty was designed for the successor states of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So that's what he was focused on. Wilson, as a matter of fact, had no problem at all with the American protectorate in the Philippines, you know, or uh, uh, appropriating Hawaii or things like that. That was, you know, Haiti, I mean. So this was, this was uh, he wasn't a kind of a rigid anti-colonialist. He assumed that there was a condition for sovereignty. And the condition for sovereignty is a civilized political system and stable political system. And a lot of places, you know, Eris Manila has pointed out in the Wilsonian moment, you know, all these liberation movements were coming. Wilson was totally disinterested because he felt they, as a matter of fact, did not have the wherewithal, number one. And in some other cases like Vietnam or, 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 uh, uh, or India, they, as a matter of fact, you know, were a, a colony still under the, uh, uh, the 
the Allies there, you know, where he basically felt in Paris they couldn't deal with that, you know. But I mean, the main point is that there was Wilson himself never had the idea of spreading the sovereignty idea worldwide. But, you know, Ryan Crane and these people said, well, this is what you say. And, this, and the readers they t- took their own path there. Okay, then we'll take uh, a break and we'll reconvene at 11.10 for the time. Thank you. Thank you.